kids are dismissed for Kids Church, so if you want to follow Renee. Um, we'll be in Habakkuk 1 this morning, so if you would like to turn there, uh, Habakkuk 1. Just a little bit about our passage to orient us to the book of Habakkuk. I'm assuming many of you may not have spent a lot of time in the book of Habakkuk. We're in a series right now in the Minor Prophets. And for three weeks, uh, we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk, and then we're going to turn to the book of Amos. And I'm really thrilled that we're in the Minor Prophets. It's not typically uh, the kind of sermon series you see in the summertime. Usually the summertime, you know, you look at the Psalms or... Uh, but we're just diving right in, going straight to the prophets. So I'm really thrilled about that. Habakkuk uh, was a prophet in Israel to the southern kingdom of Israel. So there were, was a period where Israel was a united kingdom under the rule of David and Solomon uh, and these heroic kings. But after Solomon, the kingdom fractured. And there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And Habakkuk is a prophet to the southern kingdom. And he's a prophet in some very tumultuous times. Tumultuous because a hundred years ago, the northern kingdom had been judged by the Assyrians. God had used the Assyrian superpower to come in and conquer the northern kingdom for reasons that we find in the southern kingdom. So there's kind of this anxiety and this uh, on the cusp of judgment in the southern kingdom and add some pressure to Habakkuk's ministry. At the same time, for 200 years, Israel has been led by corrupt, evil kings. That's what we see in the Old Testament. Time and time after again, a king comes to power and leads the nation away from God, not to God. And this is true in the days of Habakkuk, except for the king that was right before the ministry of Habakkuk. There was this king named Josiah. And he began to reform Israel's worship. He began to reform the society and oriented back to justice and to holiness. But after Josiah died and his son took the throne, we see the same pattern of evil, uh, idolatry, injustice. And so there's this frustration, this wondering, where is God? And in Habakkuk 1, we looked at last week, we see the prophet asking some hard questions of God. Where are you? Why are you silent? You're supposed to be engaged in what's happening in your, with your people. And you seem distant and detached. And God responds to Habakkuk with some startling news in Habakkuk 1. He says, I, I, I am here and I will act. And I am preparing the Chaldeans to come and conquer the southern kingdom. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. In Habakkuk 1, verse 12, we, we hear Habakkuk's response to that startling news. And so let's read that together. Um, Habakkuk 1, starting in verse 12, and we'll go through chapter 2, verse 5. This is Habakkuk's response to God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, 
Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as shale. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own peoples. Let, let's go to God and ask for some help as we look to his word. Father, we, we pause as we gather on Father's Day, to worship you and to turn our hearts to you, the one true, righteous, and holy Father. I pray that as we gather together and sing our songs and hear your word and connect with brothers and sisters, I pray that this day would be one drop in orienting our hearts to you. I pray that you would help us love you more deeply, obey you more quickly, and rest in you gladly. Magnify Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. So one of the things that I've been learning in my life as a dad is that parenting is hard work. Right? Maybe an amen. Parenting is hard work. We have little ones at our house, so I'm learning the hard work of changing diapers, of making sure kids are getting naps, making sure dinner's on the table by 6 p.m., because if that doesn't happen, we're on red alert. Like, things go bad pretty quick. We have a phrase in our house called hangry, and it's amazing that a three-year-old can get hangry. I thought it was just a phenomenon with adults, but parenting is hard work. But also, which could be true, I've been thinking about it from the other side, from the child's perspective. And maybe it's because I have little ones and I'm trying to help them navigate the world. But being a child is hard work. Every phase of life, we're learning how to navigate the world. We're learning how the world works. And we're learning whether or not we can trust mom and dad to help us in that process. There's kind of a silly example, but in our house, uh, this is bubbling to the surface with our three-year-old, who is almost four, 
because she wants to change her outfit like constantly. She, if she could have it her way, she would change her dress. She would have a new dress on every hour. Naturally, as good parents, uh, we're trying to correct that because, one, we don't have enough clothes. Uh, she'd run out of clothes in two to three days. But two, that kind of habit would send her on a trajectory that would just be unhealthy. And as you can imagine, she doesn't understand why. She looks at the dress in the closet and she says, it's clean, it's right there. Why won't you let me put it on? And I wonder sometimes if we ask these same kinds of questions in our faith, as we try and navigate life in a fallen world and life under God and his lordship, we wonder why sometimes when we engage a challenging situation, when we read something in the Bible that frightens us, we wonder, why is that true? How could that be true? Maybe it's a trial that you're going through, or maybe a diagnosis that you've been passed down to you. You wonder why. Why is this happening? Our passage this morning helps us in these types of questions. And the invitation this morning from Habakkuk 1 and 2 is to trust God in our doubts. To bring our questions, our doubtful hearts to God and to trust him even while we doubt. And as we look at the passage, what we're going to see is we're going to see Habakkuk's doubts. That he has some, some doubts about God and the way he's working and the way he's deciding to function and lead and be God in the world. And we'll discover, like Habakkuk, we are prone to doubt God and his ways. And the answer that God gives to Habakkuk is that faithfulness preserves. Faithfulness preserves God's people in their doubts. And then ultimately, we will look to Christ who anchors doubtful hearts. Let's look at Habakkuk's doubts. Throughout the first chapter in Habakkuk, the prophet is wrestling with some pretty big questions. Questions of justice, of evil, of judgment. Why? How could you? Why are you silent when all of this injustice and idolatry is going on, how could you use a nation like Babylon to judge your people? There's an honesty and an audacity in Habakkuk's questioning and doubts. And at times, it turns uh, pretty strong in the, in the way he almost is at times rebuking Yahweh. And this is not something that is unfamiliar to us. We see in some of the laments in the Bible, in the Psalms, in Lamentations, and in Habakkuk, this questioning, this demanding, this accusing God of not being in line with his character. Habakkuk has some great theology, but he cannot wrap his head around how God is working. And the crux of his doubt is in verse 13. You want to look there. This is what Habakkuk says. 
you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Your holiness. You are holy, but why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? The heart of his question is how could a holy God use an evil nation to judge his own people? How could he? There's no way. In fact, God, if you do this, you are out of line. And it becomes strong in verse 14 where Habakkuk says, you, if you do this, you will make mankind like the fish of the sea, like the creeping things who have no ruler. And essentially what he's saying is, if you do this, you will be turning your, you will dehumanize your creation. You will do that. Bold accusations placed against Yahweh. And just like Habakkuk, we are people prone to doubt. And maybe we don't have the kind of confidence that Habakkuk does. But we accuse God and ask these strong questions. But deep down, we have these kinds of questions. We wonder, where is God? How could this be happening? And he seems to be silent. Maybe it's a deep theological question that you just can't seem to wrap your head around. It sticks in the back of your throat. Maybe it's something that God has given you in life that you never expected. It, it reroutes the entire vision you had for your life. Why, God? What are you doing? How could you? Now, it's common within church world to be frightened by those kinds of doubts. How, how could a Christian really ask those questions of God? Just shut up and believe is the mantra that often is put forward. But what I think Habakkuk 1 and 2 helps us do is it helps us see that doubt can actually be used as a tool for faith, not a terror to faith. That our doubts directed to God can actually push us closer to Him. There's a pastor in New York who helps us reframe doubt. His name's Tim Keller. And listen to what he says about doubt. He says, A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask the hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Our doubts can be used by God to strengthen our faith. And the encouragement to us this morning from the book of Habakkuk is to engage our doubt, to wrestle with our doubt, to bring our doubt to God, and to process it because it can strengthen our faith. And I think one of the things Habakkuk shows us 
that is so helpful when we start talking about doubt and questions and heavy issues that we're working through. You notice how Habakkuk directs his questions to God. He doesn't go chop it up with his neighbor who doesn't really know God. He doesn't stew in it in himself. He brings it to the Lord. And we read it and we're like, how dare you? How could you? But what what this passage is showing us is that we ought to bring these questions to God. He can handle them. That we need to. What Keller is helping us understand is that if we don't, we become vulnerable. Our faith is flimsy. So the encouragement is to wrestle with doubt, to learn what it looks like to use doubt as a tool for faith, not a terror to faith. But how does God answer the prophet? Let's look at how, how God responds to Habakkuk's doubts. God, God's response is in chapter 2, verses 2 to 5. And he responds with a vision. He gives the prophet a vision with instructions. And the instructions are, one, write it down, and two, wait patiently for it. Write it down on tablets, chisel that baby into stone, because it needs to last. It will be a testimony to my people through the ages that the righteous shall live by faith. But also, he instructs the prophet that this is going to be hard. There will be challenges. He talks about those in verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. Your circumstance, what you see, Habakkuk, is going to cause you to think that I'm a liar, that I will not be faithful to my promise. But I'm telling you, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And we see the vision in verses 4 to 5. And the heart of what God is saying is that faithfulness preserves God's people. Faithfulness preserves God's people in their doubts. And basically, the entire vision is sometimes the poetry of it is a little hard to understand, but essentially what God is saying in this vision is that the evil are proud. They are puffed up. And they will run ragged chasing self-glory. They will never find fulfillment and ultimately be betrayed by their own pursuits and waste away in the wind. But the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by steadfast faithfulness and trust in my promise and who I am, even within their doubts. They will throw themselves upon me, even when they have questions, even when they're wrestling with big, heavy things. There's a a translation that I like to reference called The Message, and it tries to use contemporary language. And this is what Uh, it translates for verse 4. Look at that man, bloated by self-importance, full of himself, but soul empty. 
but the person in righteous standing before God through loyal and steady believing is fully alive, really alive. Faithfulness preserves God's people in their doubt. I was uh, doing some research when I was thinking about uh, this point. I was doing some research on canning. I don't have a lot of experience canning fruit, vegetable, and food, um, but I was learning about canning fruit. And basically, the way it works is you take maybe a peach, for example, some peaches, and you put it in a jar, and you create this solution that preserves the peach. You close the jar, put it up on the shelf, and then you have peaches at your disposal. Maybe you have some in the wintertime. Whenever you want a peach, you got one. It's fresh. And this is, in some ways, kind of what God is helping Habakkuk understand. If you're a peach, faithfulness is putting yourself in the jar, and God is preserving you through your doubt. In the passage, he's preserving his people through judgment through tumultuous times, through challenge, through days when we wonder, where is God? That is when we are to throw ourselves on the Lord and give ourselves to faithfulness, even though we doubt. Some of you in this room maybe are frightened by your doubt. You have these questions, and you're terrified that if anyone heard, especially in the church, if any other Christian heard the kinds of questions you're asking, that you would be exposed as a fraud. A Christian can't answer those questions. A Christian shouldn't wonder about those things. And God's word to you is faithfulness preserves. The righteous shall live by faith. Give yourself to faithfulness. And it's not going to look like hand raised on, on Sunday morning. It's not going to look pretty, okay? It doesn't have to look pretty. It might be you stumbling to God. It might be you just throwing yourself upon the promises of God. But faithfulness preserves God's people in their doubt. But even more, Christ anchors us in our doubt. And that's the last point. Christ anchors doubtful hearts. The vision in Habakkuk 2 is a pattern for God's people. And we see it throughout all of redemptive history. It's applicable in Habakkuk's day, but it's also applicable in 2019. As we seek to learn what it looks like to live as a disciple of Jesus and to live in light of what he has done. And this means that we are called to turn to Christ with our doubts, to look to Christ, even as we have hard questions, even as we wonder if this thing is really true, to look to Christ and to look to the cross. Because at the cross, God uses an evil thing to accomplish good. God uses the evil of crucifixion the injustice of an innocent man's suffering for our salvation. The cross surprises us. It perplexes us. But at the same time, it is our salvation. The place where Jesus bears our doubt and secures our forgiveness. 
the cross is the declaration to the world that God has not forgotten us. That he is faithful to his promises. And that he is up to something that we don't always understand. We can't wrap our heads around what he's doing. And the cross teaches us to learn how to be surprised by God. To learn how to turn to him and recognize his godness. That he is bigger than we are. He is an infinite being. We are finite creatures. Does it, does it conf- why does it confuse us that we would have a hard time trying to understand an infinite being? But in our doubts, we can turn to Christ and find hope in the cross. You think about Habakkuk's question, how could God use an evil nation to accomplish his purposes? If Habakkuk, when Habakkuk, or I don't know how it works, but if Habakkuk is looking at the cross, his jaw is dropping. How could God use something evil to accomplish good? The cross is our demonstration at how God could use something that we cannot comprehend to accomplish our salvation. Christ anchors doubtful hearts. Uh, In a couple weeks, me and my family are going to go to Michigan. Uh, My in-laws have a lake house in Michigan, and they have a pontoon boat. Uh, And so we go fishing, we go swimming often on the pontoon boat. A whole lot of fun. When we go swimming on the pontoon boat, it's very, very important that we throw the anchor in. Because if we don't throw the anchor in, the boat is gone. The wind and the current are taking that boat, and we'll be left just crazy in the water. And this, this is what I'm trying to say. Christ anchors us in our doubts. That Christ tethers us to the promises of God. He connects us to the forgiveness, to the truth, to the realities of God. Christ anchors us when we are in the winds of doubt and the current of questions. Christ anchors us. He keeps us secure. He keeps us safe. So we ought to look to him. Now, This doesn't mean that your doubt is totally going to disappear. It doesn't mean that your doubt will dissipate. You will likely continue to have the kinds of questions. And you will continue to learn how to wrestle with those and turn your doubt into a tool for faith, not a terror to faith. But you have a more powerful message in the cross to your doubt. The gospel, give a microphone to the gospel in your heart. The gospel needs to be louder than your doubts. And that's why we plaster the gospel all over our life. We plaster it all over our homes. We plaster it all over our phones. We surround ourselves with people that can point us to the cross. Because in the cross, our doubts find hope. In the cross... Our doubts find an anchor. And we find that God is much bigger 
than we ever thought. He is busting out of that box we put him in. So like Habakkuk, we are prone to doubt. Don't be afraid about the questions you ask. Learn how to engage him. Learn how to draw him out. Don't look away. Look towards. Direct your doubts to God. And learn how to use your doubts as a tool for faith, not a terror to faith. And learn how to give yourself to faithfulness. Because faithfulness to God preserves us in our doubts. And praise God for the good news of the gospel because Christ, our Savior, anchors us in our doubts. The temptation is to worry that our doubts are going to take us away from God, that are going to take us away to who knows where, that we'll be lost. But Christ, the finished work of the cross, anchors us in our doubts. When the winds of doubt, when the current of question is beating you down, remember, Christ anchors us. And we see this trajectory in the book of Habakkuk. And in Habakkuk's questions, his doubts, his lamenting to God. And he ends with faithfulness. He ends secure in affirming Yahweh and his promises. And so let me read. There's, at the end, there's a couple verses where basically Habakkuk makes his final declaration. And I don't think I'm going to steal next week's kind of it finishes my sermon and then is going to kick us into next week. But listen to this, Habakkuk 3, verses 17 to 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the, field, from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for uh, this passage. We thank you for the book of Habakkuk. We thank you for the invitation to wrestle with our doubt to wrestle with our questions. I pray, God, that you would just dump your Holy Spirit on us, that we would be a people that wrestle with doubt in a God-honoring way, that learn how to use it for your glory as a way to strengthen our faith. Would you free us up in this place to be a people that can share things that we're experiencing, to share hard questions, but in it all, I pray that you would teach us to remember that we are anchored in Christ and the gospel. That our salvation is secure in him. We thank you for all that you do and all that you are. And pray that you would just continue to orient us to the gospel and to a hopeful joyful worship of you as our Father. And I pray by the power of the Spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen. Please stand.